to turn with me uh, just to begin with, just one, uh, one, one scripture, Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse, just verse 10 here. It says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every man may receive the things that are done in his body according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. Now, you know, for us, we say, well, yeah, that's actually what's coming. There's a, there's a judgment that's coming, and everybody's going to have to stand before the Lord, and there's going to have to be an account given. It's not that we're going to be sort of standing in a position where we're, we're going to be able to mount some sort of defense for ourselves and for our, our actions, because the Lord already knows everything about our life. But sometimes when we turn to people with, with this sort of news, there's a judgment that's coming. And everybody is going to be uh, held accountable. And you sometimes get that followed up by a statement, well, almost a, a bit of a counter, well, well, well in, in my opinion, and to do with salvation has got nothing to do with anybody's opinion. It's got nothing to do with anybody's opinion. You know, the Scriptures talk about, uh, about the judgment, the things that are going to come. Back in the book of Daniel, it talks about uh, of them that sleep in the dust of the earth are going to awake. It says some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, they're really strong words, and people try to be really dismissive of those. And then there's an encouragement for those who would be wise. And it says, and they that would be wise, they will shine as the brightness of the firmament it says, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. You know, there's a lot of things to do with the Word of God where people will have an opinion. In the times that we live in now, there's a lot of teaching about, oh, you just have to respect everybody's opinions. There was one person who said, well, different people do have different opinions, and it's okay to respect all of them. But that's only my opinion. When you have a look at the differences between what people believe and their lifestyles and then the, uh, the, the actions that are prompted because of their opinions and so on, it's actually you don't respect everybody's opinion. We don't. If we have, that some people think that, in my opinion, it's okay to go out and steal somebody's car and then hoon around and put other people in danger. So in my opinion, that's all right to do that. And that actually gets some people that would agree with them. But we don't agree with everybody's opinion. When you get a mounting of opinion and you get uh, perhaps a, uh, a big swell of public opinion, a big swell of public opinion is enough to overthrow governments. It's enough to get people, as we see, we've seen over the last uh, decade or so, where people would made, make uh, various statements to do with morality and about things that are right and things that are wrong. But in the face of mounting this swell of public opinion, people then have changed their mind. Now, some people have got some idea that God has made that way, that if all of a sudden... We don't agree with the salvation that he said and the requirements that he had and about the things that we should do and the things that we shouldn't do. If we don't end up agreeing with that, that somehow in the end he's going to have to bend to our will. 
Well, he's a little bit stronger than that, isn't he? He doesn't work things that way. We know that in a lot of uh, societies, the power of public opinion has mounted and has actually led to full-on revolt. Now, sometimes that is because of harshness of people's lives. The end of that, though, is never actually simple when there's a full-on revolt about things because you do end up along the way with mayhem and injury and even death in all sorts of societies and it's very, very difficult. Let's go to Isaiah, just chapter 1. Now, some people want to challenge us and say, who is this God who would actually just sort of think that just because he makes a decree that everybody should go along with that? And some people think that, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with a, a, a blind faith and, and people, uh, if they're going to believe in God, then they're going to stop thinking for themselves and then they're just going to be commanded by others and they're going to be, uh, I guess, tricked into some things as well and so on. In Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord is saying, I actually want you to work these things out. He says, I actually don't have just a whole, you know, sort of a, a, an open slather on, oh, well, you've got your opinion, I've got my opinion, let's agree to differ. And that's what a lot of people want to do. The Lord instructs us and challenges us. He says, I actually want you to work these things out. He starts off with a few accusations against, against Israel. We'll just start in verse 4. And it talks about, ah, a sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They've forsaken the Lord. They've provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger. They've gone away backward. And then he asks the question, he says, why do you keep doing it this way? He says, why should you be stricken anymore? Because their lives were in a, in a bit of a heap. Things weren't working very well for them. He said, you'll revolt more and more. He said, and the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. He says, from the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they've not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Now he was, he was drawing some natural parallels about people's uh, well-being, about their health, as far as their health in their position with God. So as a result of all of these things that you've chosen, in verse 7, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. So it's to do with your land. Strangers devour it in your presence. And it's just as desolate as overthrown by strangers. And he goes on and it says, the daughter of Zion left as a cottage and various things that are in there. He ends up, we just stumped down to verse 18, and he says, oh no, so verse 17. He says, learn to do well. Seek judgment. He says, not, not, just, not, not just what are you going to lean to just yourself in your own understanding. You want to actually know what's truth and what is actual judgment. He says, relieve the oppressed. Do those good things. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And then he says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. He says, though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they're going to be as wool. And he said, and if you be willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. You'll actually be blessed in all of these things. Come now and let us reason together. He says, you've got to work this out because there's a judgment coming. 
If you make a mistake on these things, if you're on the wrong side of things, we're on the wrong side of the judgment. You won't be happy with the result of all of those things. Now, a lot of people through the Old Testament actually had a healthy fear of when they would see the Lord, as we ought to have a healthy fear. But what's it going to be like when we will see the Lord? It's not going to be that we'll be in a position where we can turn around and say to him, oh, hang on just a little minute, I've got, I got a few little disagreements with the way that you've handled things. It's not going to be dealt with that way at all. There were people actually sort of thought deeply about what position am I actually going to be in when I see the Lord? There were several of them, and, and uh, we're not going to go into each of the stories, but we'll just mention some of them. There was Gideon who had an encounter and says when he, he perceived there was an angel of the Lord and his response was, I'm toast. It's not what it says. He says, alas, O Lord God. He says, I'm in trouble here. He says, because I've seen an angel of the Lord face to face. This is judgment day. I'm not ready for this. That was his response on things. And the Lord actually had to say to him, oh, look, settle down, lad. He said, peace be unto thee. Fear not. You're not going to die. He said, actually, I've got some other things for you to do. Jacob in the Old Testament, when he had a, a vision and he said, and he was amazed. He said, I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. He was sort of uh, piggybacking off of a general understanding that even Moses had when he had an encounter with God and God had told him that you actually can't see my face because Moses wanted to see him. He says, you can't see my face. He says, there'll be no man see me and live. And so Jacob's response was, I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. How special is all of that? There was another special uh, person, uh, a fellow by the name of Manoah. Uh, him and his wife, they are the parents of uh, Samson in the, in, in the Bible, you know, the, the, the big strong man for those people who would know it. And he ended up in this encounter with these people and he wanted to make some sort of offering. And when he did it, it was basically the angels that were with him, it says they did wondrously. There was fire came down and consumed the, the, the sacrifice that was so on. And it was all parts of promises that were going to be made to him. And Manoah said to his wife, now we're going to die because we've seen God. His wife actually said, that doesn't quite add up to me. The wife said to him, if the Lord actually just wanted to kill us, how come he actually accepted a sacrifice from us? That's not the way God operates, that he's just not going to kill people. There's reasons, though, and, and these people had it in their mind. They knew about where they'd fallen short of the things in their life where they should have been serving the Lord. And it was sort of a bit of a wake-up call as well. I have to do these things better as well. Can we go to First Corinthians chapter 6? Because we want to have a look and say, well, why should we actually fear God and make sure that our opinions, our understanding of things, come into line with what he says? Why should we do that? In First Corinthians chapter 6, and this is why there's a judgment, is because there's unrighteousness. And the Lord says you're not actually going to have unrighteousness in his kingdom. 
He's not going to let unrighteousness be something that's preserved into eternity. He's not going to have that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, we're told, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a judgment. There's going to be a decision made. There's the righteous, there's the unrighteous. The unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It says, be, don't be deceived. Don't be thinking, in your opinion, oh, everybody should just go to heaven. Don't do that. Don't be deceived. I'll explain it more fully to you. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves of mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, none of them are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, he says, and such were all of us in some way or other. We didn't have that right standing and that right relationship with God. It says that you are now washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Elsewhere in Galatians, it says you need to walk in the Spirit and if you do that, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. You won't be caught up with all of those things. It goes on in Galatians and it, and it gives a, a comparable list and it talks about these things, adultery and fornication, uncleanness, uh, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, uh, uh, variance, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings. It says, and there's such light, anything that would be comparable to that. He says, I've told you before, I'm going to tell you again, that they which do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's going to be a separation. Those that are going to uh, fit and those that are not. And Ephesians, no unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. They just don't have anything to do with any of those things. And so the question comes up about Oh, well, who's going to be able to stand? Who will actually be able to be worthy at that time? So the question would be, when we do see God or Jesus, what do we think our reaction is going to be? And that's something that needs to be weighed up continuously. Will it be something straight away that there's every confidence about, oh, what a time of rejoicing, how good that's going to be? Or will it be the things that are percolating around, deeper within us and things that we should have put away? Or those things are just so visible to the Lord as soon as we see him. So we're saying that some people might think that they actually have a say in their own judgment and they think they can justify for themselves. They might think that their popularity will get them a better deal. You know, as far as popularity goes, I looked up about, uh, oh, well, who, who are the most popular people in the world? I guess you know, they can do some sort of measures now about how many people have the most number of people following them. And we look at things uh, like, like Twitter and various other things, and we get different people. And now, for some of you, if I went through this list, you would be saying, 
Who on earth are these people? For some of us. I'll read a couple of names in just a moment. But some people, you know, when they go into certain situations and they turn around and they say, do you know who I am? And in some way, I think some people have got that idea about when judgment day comes, they're going to stand before the Lord and say, do you know who I am? That sort of thing. It could be a Taylor Swift type person. 120 million followers. 120 million people who love Taylor Swift. Who Taylor Swift cannot possibly know or love. And you might think, I got 120 million people who would vouch for me. If we think that that's going to work, it's not going to. When we, oh, why would this person be more important than anybody else? What are they famous for? Well, famous for singing, famous for dating, famous for singing about dating, famous for having feuds with people. And one I don't understand, famous for being a cat lady. I actually don't understand what that even means. There's other people with more than that. Somebody by the, and we actually just, I'll do a little bit of check. Who knows these people? Neymar. A couple of people know Neymar. What's he famous for? Playing a sport and for going by one name. Well, that's going to make you special, isn't it? That's actually going to help you. Leo Messi, who knows? 125 million followers. Again, for playing sport. And how do you uh, pronounce this? Is it Beyonce or Beyonce? What, how do you pronounce that? Beyonce. Yeah, I, I've missed out on all of these things. You see, if it turns out that on that, on that judgment day, the Lord leans over and says, oh look, David, just come and give us a bit of a hand. I've got a bit of a cue here. And this person, Beyonce, comes up and says, do you know who I am? I'm sorry, I haven't got a clue who you are. But she's supposed to be a reigning queen in the music industry. There we go. Kylie Jenner. Anyone? Yeah, oh, you all know all of these things. Kim Kardashian, uh, you know that. Uh, Dwayne Johnson, a lot of people know that just from movies and so on. Uh, Selena Gomez, some people here would know. Uh, Ariana Grande. Grande, however. And, and of course, Ronaldo, 175 million followers. Now, some people are going to be thinking, oh, I love them. Oh, they've got it. They've got it. Yeah. And, and when these people in, in these sort of rooms, they pass away and people sort of have these sort of like imaginations about them being in heaven and somehow still caring about them, who never actually, I mean, they posted all their stuff on Twitter and everything else but never answered anything personal at all. There's other people who think, well, everybody thinks that I'm all right. Well, another truth is getting agreement from your friends that you're all right still won't change God's judgment on you. That actually won't happen. Those people who say, do you know who I am? I mean, you get a couple of famous people and some people in particular, and they're pretty good in their own opinion. 
They're pretty good in their own opinion. Now, we have your various religious leaders, and of course you might get somebody in the position of the Pope and think, oh, that's a given, he's going to heaven. And if you ask Donald Trump, he'd have that, he'd have that opinion as well. But I'm pretty good. And you think, no matter what everybody says, they actually still really love me. That's a, actually, I've got a little story here. The Pope and Donald Trump were on stage in front of a huge crowd. The Pope just quietly leaned over to Mr. Trump and said, do you know that with one little wave of my hand, I can make every person in this crowd go wild with joy? This joy won't be just a momentary display like that of your followers, but go deep into their hearts and for the rest of their lives, whenever they speak of this day, they will rejoice. Donald Trump replied, well, I seriously doubt that. With one little wave of your hand, show me. So the Pope slapped him. I'm oh, sorry, yeah, the cheap shot, I know. <laughs> you know, when it comes, when it comes to the things that come from the Word of God and about how people get their salvation, we come up with all sorts of oppositions and we're going to tell people unashamedly the same answer that people got back in Bible days when they were asked, what should we do? We're going to be saying, well, you've got to repent and you've got to be baptised and God will fill you with the Holy Spirit. The promise is to you and your children, all that are far off, even as many as God will call. And then we get people who say, well, I don't quite agree with that. Well, somebody else actually had a really good line to do with that. If you've got a different opinion to that, Please raise your hand. Now put it over your mouth. Too many people think that their opinions are facts. And it's not true at all. The thing that we rejoice in, the truth that comes out of these scriptures, the thing about truth is it exists independent of people's personal belief. It's not tied to opinion. It's true even if nobody believed it. The truth is a truth. Now other people are going to come up with other opinions about the scriptures, about who Jesus is and so on. There's a couple of lines we can use on them. I've used them before in, uh, in a talk before. But people sort of say, you have to respect everybody. You've got to respect what they say. Well, a good line to use is if you want me to respect your opinions, we'll get better opinions to do with the gospel. Sometimes we have to say to people, maybe trying to be kind, oh, well, everyone has a right to their own opinions. Well, yours are just wrong. And when we're dealing with the gospel, we can deal with that. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. Because Peter was put on the spot and asked about his opinion. Peter had a great uh, advantage over all of us in that he'd seen firsthand and he was in the presence of Jesus himself. 
and seeing the miracles that were there. But Jesus actually still knew there was influence around about. And there were fears that came up in people's own minds and uncertainties and reasonings and all those sorts of things. And in Matthew chapter 16, just in verse 13, (coughs) when Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, he said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? What's the range of opinions around about? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elias or Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he asked, well, where are you up to in your thinking? Whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Now, I think that those thoughts would have been churning around in Peter's mind for ages before that. It's not like from the very beginning when Jesus presented himself and people were able to go to to others and say, we've found the Messiah. We've found the truth. We've found the fulfillment of the prophecies. And they talked and they considered and there was a great anticipation from some people that he was going to be appearing. And they suspected from their own dialogue in their time. And so they were looking for him. Now in our time, we also need to be looking for him, anticipating, expecting, because the signs that are around about indicate that, well, it can be during our lifetime he's going to show himself. He's going to show himself to us and to the whole world. So Peter said to him, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. That would have got him into trouble with quite a few people. But anyway, Jesus answered and said to him, well, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. He says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this unto you, but my Father, which is in heaven. Now, in the same way, or similar way, in our turn, the revelation of Jesus Christ being the Son of God has not come just because of an intellectual recognition of, oh, this happened, that happened, that happened, oh, that just sort of adds up, you know, in, in this, in this world generally. The circumstances of, uh, you know, the, the, the Bible and everything else, oh, yes, it's a historical figure and all those sorts of things. There's a lot of people that have known all of that history. There's a lot of people in the, in the, in the churches that have done huge study on all of those things, the life of Jesus and the things that followed after that. And in the end, still choose not to believe the gospel that's in there. Not to believe just the words that Jesus spoke. So, so the Lord was able to say, you've had it revealed to you. For the people who understand the Lord, it actually does come as by revelation. First off, there's an investigation. Could the words that are in here be true sayings? And then we go and we test it, and everybody's able to test it effectively. It's not to do with intellect. It's not to do with race. It's not to do with wealth. It's not to do with fame or fortune or anything else like that. We're able to go and test through baptism and asking the Lord, oh, please fill me with the Holy Spirit. And then he does. 
and he does marvelously for us. So the Lord is able to give a revelation to every single one of us. You know, in the the, the book of John, and uh, we won't go for a lot longer here on things, there's a great story about a man who was blind, and then he was... Actually, we'll just turn to John chapter 9. I'll just pick kind of the verses out. So there's a great story. This person who was blind, been blind all his life, and uh, the Lord came along and healed him. And the people were at a wonder about how could that possibly happen. But other people came up and they wanted to challenge the whole idea that these things could happen. Actually, we'll read just a little section of this in just a moment. There were people who came along and they challenged that person and they said, well, what's your opinion of him? And that man that was healed he said, he's opened my eyes. This man is a prophet. This is somebody who's got something to do with, he's from God. And other people came and they challenged. And actually, we will pick up on this one here because it's such a good story. Then in verse 26, the intellectuals came along, the religious leaders. In John chapter 9, we're looking here, verse 26. And he'd actually explained his story to several people up until this point. But then in verse 26, they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And this man, he turned around and he said, well, I've told you already and you didn't hear. He says, wherefore would you hear it again? Would you also be his disciples? Would it be enough to change your mind, to change your opinion of him? It says, and uh, then they reviled him. And they said, you are his disciple, and we are Moses' disciples. And then this strange little statement, he says, we know that God spoke to Moses. How do they know that God spoke to Moses? They didn't live at the time of Moses. It's all in the stories, of course, and they, and they believed, they wanted to believe all of the stories. It was in the, the histories. It was recorded. But they didn't live at that time. They said, we know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't know where he's from. Those people were hundreds of years separated from Moses, and here he was, the son of God, standing right with them and doing miracles. We know this. We we know we understand. It says, the man answered and said to them, well, herein is a marvellous thing. Now, I don't know what tone he had in his voice at that time, but uh, I could imagine it coming across as being really quite incredulous. I can't work you guys out. How amazing is this? Here is a marvellous thing. You can't tell where he's from, and yet he's opened my eyes. He's given my eyesight back. And you can't work out where that came from. You sad, sad examples. It says, now we know that God hears not sinners, but if any man be a worshipper of God and do his will, him he hears. It says, since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was blind? And they said, if this man were not of God, he could do nothing. Now that's the truth. And they answered and said unto him, 
oh, you were altogether born in sins and you're going to teach us? And they cast him out. Remember, they, 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 they cast him out of the synagogue. You're not allowed to go in there anymore. Now, for some people would think, oh, goody, that, doesn't mean, that means I don't have to go to church anymore. In those days, it meant that you would actually have trouble in the whole society that lived around you. There'd be people that were mocking you. You'd have trouble getting work. Uh, you'd have trouble. You know, people wouldn't go to you for business if you had to sell things, all sorts of things. It was actually a really serious thing that had happened at that time. Jesus heard they cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to them, Do you believe on the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, You have both seen him, and it is he that talks with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So I guess for us that are here today, just in finishing off, in verse 35, the question from Jesus, Do you believe on the Son of God? If we've got an opinion that, oh, yes, I generally believe, well, we'll follow that up with, well, if you do believe, have you been baptised? Because Jesus instructed that we should. Do you believe him? He instructed that we should. Do you believe on the Son of God? If you believe on the Son of God and you've not been baptised as you, you can be baptised today and put that right. Jesus said that signs are going to follow those who believe. He talks about the miraculous. He talks about the signs and the wonders. And in particular, it talks about that they're going to speak in tongues. That they're going to have a sign that comes when God's presence is there. And we will read about it just in the book of Acts because there might be a couple of people here who haven't seen these things before. As when the disciples were there and Jesus had instructed them don't miss out on the things that are coming. Don't miss out on these things. They were instructed to wait for the promise of the Father. And for Jesus, you could tell it was the whole focus of what he was bringing all these people towards. The promise of the Father to work in you. Don't miss out on that. Don't go and do anything else until you have that. And so they got together, it says, and they waited and they talked and they prayed and they prayed some more and they considered the situation that they knew the Lord. And then in chapter 2, it says, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. One accord, there's one purpose. There's one reason for being there. They're waiting for the promise of the Father. It says, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire and sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the New Testament church began. It starts off there with 120 people. The people wanted to know, what's happening here? And Peter stood up and he told them about what was actually happening, and he, and he made the link back to their history about what was foreseen by, you know, by King David was going to happen and things about uh, you know, Jesus himself coming, the Son of God, and about him uh, dying, but then being raised from the dead, ascending up into heaven, and he says, and now he's given us this. And in verse 37, we'll jump to that, 
says they were pricked in their heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, well, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, and I quoted this earlier, well, you also need to repent. Whatever our opinions have been, if it's been out of step with all of this, oh, we're going to need to change that opinion. We can change the opinion if we get the things that come from God that are talked about here. It says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It says, for the promise is unto you and your children and all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. If he's called you, the promise is for you. That's what he's saying. We don't want to miss out on that. It says, but with many other words he did testify and exhausted, save yourself. You need to be saved. There's a judgment coming. We want to be ready for that judgment. Save yourself from this underworld generation, an opinionated generation. There's always been the case. Turn ourselves, do things the, the Lord's way, and let's be like it says in this next verse, they that gladly received his word, they were baptised. And the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Folks, the invitation is, the people be, the soul be added to be counted amongst those. And we read a whole heap of other scriptures about that judgment day and the things that are going to come. And there's going to be a resurrection that has happened. And the people that are part of that resurrection haven't been filled with God's spirit. It says of them, there's no harm after that at all. That they'll be judged on that judgment day, all ready to be righteous, all ready to go on to the eternities with the Lord. And what we want to make sure is that, in my opinion, that's what we all should do. Amen. 